Hi everyone, kia ora koutou, hoa ma, haere mai, and welcome to the first episode of Breakfast Chats. I'm coming to you from the inside of my dark wardrobe, with my dressing gown touching my face, because it is the only place in our house that doesn't have a lot of background noise, including the honking of car horns or people on the street yelling up to their mates in the apartments above us, trying to get them to come down during alert level three. I'm not bitter or petty about this at all. I am just saying buzzers and phones exist. Heavy sigh. Anyway, Breakfast Jets, what is it? It's a podcast that I made up like last week because I didn't want to type out a bunch of interviews because I've done that before and it's very time consuming and it sucks the joy out of my life. And I thought that talking to people would be much more interesting. Um, And maybe you would find that interesting as well. But realistically, this is my excuse to talk to my friends and people that I find interesting whose social media profiles I look about online because I think that they're cool. Um, Yeah, so this is my excuse to talk to them. So Breakfast Chats, it's a podcast for people just trying to make their way in the world. That's what it is. We talk to interesting people about the things they're doing, what they care about, and what they're still figuring out. Because I think that is so important that all of us are still figuring things out. I'm still figuring this out. Life, this podcast, everything. Uh, Breakfast Chats is a podcast spinoff of the Cerebral blog, which is my personal blog, run by me, Kim Anderson. Anyway, today I'm really excited to be chatting to Julie Zhu, who is someone that this will become a common theme in future episodes probably. I looked on her Twitter profile and she seemed really cool. We ended up working together and the other day I got to chat to her about her mahi and what motivates her to shine a light on the stories of minority cultures here in Aotearoa. Um, a wee disclaimer on this one, like the byline says, I'm one of those people still figuring this podcasting out. Uh, the audio isn't perfect, the Wi-Fi drops out, there are some funky crackle noises. Um, but you know what? I had a lovely chat to Julie, and I hope you enjoyed. I've tried to cut out the worst of it, but heck, let's get stuck in. Kia ora, Julie. Um, Hi, um, Kate Ora Tanu. Akwe? Um, yeah, Kate Play. So, just to introduce you, so Julie Zhu is a filmmaker, photographer, podcaster, and activist, focusing, I would say, largely on stories and experiences of like minority cultures in Aotearoa. Have I missed anything out? <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's so much better when someone else introduces you than when you have to introduce yourself, I think. Yeah, I kind of looked you up last night again just to kind of refresh my memory of some of the things that you'd done. There's so much stuff that Julie has done. I'm so impressed. Oh, interesting you say that because I feel like on my life I've not done enough, but I feel like I've built like a weird reputation of having done lots. What makes you think like you haven't done enough? Um, or maybe maybe it's because I feel like I am trying to pursue film at the moment. Mm-hmm. And especially in film, I feel like I've not made enough. Um, and I know, because like a couple of years ago when I did that talk at the Power of Inclusion, which was like a conference for filmmakers particularly, um, I remember feeling like, whoa, I'm so not qualified to speak at this. Like, what have I even made? Um, just that sort of the classic imposter syndrome thing. But yeah, I feel like I'm slowly chipping away and making little things. No, and it's been really cool to see the stuff that you've been putting out. Um, 
I was going to mention the how we met, which was film. I'm, I actually feel like we met before this, but then I talked to you a little bit more properly when I auditioned for a role in the short film you produced and co-directed called Myth of the Model Minority, which is streaming on TVNZ On Demand if anyone wants to watch it. Um, <laughs> so, nice I know. I think it's we I just prefer like knowing you from Twitter. I was like, whoa, it's Kim from Twitter. Uh, when you audition because I was like I definitely didn't just randomly stumble across the audition call out it was because I think you'd linked to something and I must have followed it on Facebook I think mm -hmm. it was the Facebook page where are you really from and I've been asked that question so many times that I'm like oh, I have to follow that page what do you I wanted to ask you like what do you remember about making that short film and why were you and Nyon um who's the director why were you interested in creating it because it's like a really interesting mm. short film like it was a one take mm. film in a um in a Chinese restaurant on Dominion Road where each scene was written by like a different writer yeah, yeah. I think the concept of it definitely came from Nyon um especially like with the one take and this small vignettes. Uh, I think for both of us, we're really interested in like collaboration and community making, or lots of the projects I've worked on are very like community focused. So it's not led by like one individual, but it's like group thinking everyone contributes. And that was really important for us. Having so many stories in just like one place, I think the key point of it was to show that as storytellers and as people, from the diaspora who are Asian living here in Aotearoa that we have so many stories that cover so many themes and topics and uh, so often we're pigeonholed into these narrow um, stories of what an immigrant, an immigrant story might be like or a stereotype might be but just showing like 20 different stories in a short span of time there were I think like 42 actors in there just so many different kinds of people yeah I think we just wanted to just like break apart what it means to be Asian in, in Aotearoa or in Tamaki Makaurau in particular, um, because that kind of strip of Dominion Road is pretty iconic. And I think, yeah, people might have um, biases about who eats there, what kind of people, um, but yeah, just kind of shattering some of those expectations, hopefully. It was really cool um, going into rehearsal and seeing everyone practicing their different scenes and from a story point of view it was like really interesting to see the different ways that like characters were interacting and the different stories that were being told and then from a technical standpoint it was so hard to get a one take <laughs> I definitely yeah. messed it up because our scene so I ended up acting in the scene that you wrote which featured yes. yeah an Asian family conversing entirely in Tereo Māori and um we were like right at the end and I definitely remember messing it up <laughs> because Amazingly, out of me, you, the writer for that scene, um, Dee, who played my brother, and then Lido, who played our dad, I was the only one who could only speak English and everyone else could speak Tereo and Mandarin and English. Um, yeah, but that's, that's, that's not nothing to be like, look at you, you're learning now. And um, yeah, I was really good to have you as someone yeah. who does have Māori Whakapapa be part of that scene. Like that was pretty amazing. I just was super blown away by just how everyone can speak these different languages, particularly because all three of you are either, I think, a first gen in New Zealand, like your parents immigrated or Ledu immigrated with his mm. wife. 
and that all of you had decided to like pick up Te Māori. I just wanted to ask you like, why, what was kind of going through your mind when you were writing that scene? Why in Te Māori? Um, why was that important for you? Yeah, um, I guess part of it was from having met other people who were kawiwi learning te reo, um, I could see it happening more and more. I also kind of have my personal views now about that maybe it's also like taking resources away from Māori who need to learn given that priority first. So I think like over the years, my politics keep changing and um, views around all of this. But yeah, I know it's sort of a situation that doesn't really exist at the moment. Like people who go to a restaurant and they'll just like converse in te reo Māori when they're not Māori and it's not like acknowledged. You're not doing it because you're part of the like te reo Māori learning group, study group, and that's why you're doing it. You're just doing it because it's your normal um, life. But it was sort of like an alternative future where this is normalised and yeah, te reo Māori is as common as te reo Pākehā and so we just learn that and we'll speak it alongside maybe their own other immigrant mother tongues um and it's yeah so that's why it was really important that whatever they talked about wasn't um wow learning Māori is great or yeah like it wasn't yeah a tokenized thing but a weird weird dreamy future that may happen the first time i properly met z so i met him once um i think after a show at basement theater but when I properly got to chat to him, it was when I went to um, Shanghai by myself uh, for kind of the first time. I went back to China since I was like 15. And that was mm-hmm. the first time I went back to China. Um, and Z was there. He was there for like six months, I think, trying to learn Mandarin. And we met up there. And that was the first time we probably had a conversation. And we were speaking like three languages. It was so bizarre, but amazing. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I want those sorts of situations to be like more common. But at the same time, I totally acknowledge that it's hard. Like learning te reo for tauiwi is so different to learning um, as Māori. Uh, for tauiwi, it's almost like it's a hobby and you can kind of pick it up without much thought uh, or you're kind of doing it for your own just like superficial benefit. But I think it's different for Māori learning te reo because there's a lot more shame and trauma and intergenerational like family baggage that comes with it and I relate a lot to that because with Mandarin that's something I've still not quite nailed like over the years I've become much better like when I was little I refused to speak Mandarin and now I'm much more open to speaking it but there's still like a barrier in my head to properly learning it and getting better um yeah so yeah I do know that you know writing scenes like that it's almost like a bit flippant of me to present this when it's not as easy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts about all this because um, I do, yeah, like whenever uh, Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori comes along every year, I know there's always stories, new stories about uh, Te Wiki learning Te Reo and there's always so much like positive attention that those stories get and it's like Te Wiki get praised so much for learning Te Reo when Māori don't get that same praise. Yeah. yeah, it's the sense yeah, that like you don't have to, um, but you're doing it anyway, and that's fantastic. Whereas for Māori, maybe trying to re- like by learning to do Māori, I'm trying to reclaim that part of my heritage mm-hmm. that was lost because of like colonialism and assimilation. 
I mean, like, I love that everyone is like more more and more people learning to do Māori. Um, it is fantastic. And it is one of our official languages. So it just mm-hmm. makes sense. But yeah, I definitely yeah. see what you mean. So you, I read that you took up Te Māori in first year of uni. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, I mean, like, why? <laughs> I think why? it feels kind of like, I guess, left field. Um, I mean, there's yeah. so, it's not like the um, most common thing that people would choose to, to learn. I guess so. I mean, I feel like now it's probably changed than from 10 years mm-hmm. ago when I first started at uni, but um, I feel like I've always just kind of connected with Te Reo Māori, like even just the kapu that you learn at primary or intermediate. Um, at intermediate, I had a Samoan teacher who uh, every day had to do a karakia. So it was just, I guess, like quite normalised. Um, oh. And then I got to high school. Um, I tried to learn Te Reo again because you had to pick a language in year nine and it was Māori, German or Japanese. And I picked Māori. I think I was only like one of the only Chinese people and I just didn't take it further, but I kind of wish I had. So yeah, in first year uni, I like, tried again, took um, just the first 101 paper again and I just really loved it. It like really clicked my brain. But I was definitely learning when I first started. It was just like a language that interested me. And then as I learned and became more aware of Tao Māori, then, then kind of the political side came through and getting to meet people and forming that group, Asian Supporting Te Oranga Teratanga, that, yeah, just solidified uh, for me the importance of acknowledging the land that we're on and um, the history of Aotearoa and what that means for Taui we living here. So yeah, everything just kind of made more sense. I felt like I was just like awakened through partly through learning to deal. And I think also through learning to deal that um, it's made me more connected to my um, Chinese whakapapa as well. Being more okay with owning that and and shedding the internalized racism that I grew up with. That's super interesting that so like through learning Te Reo and more about Te Ao Māori, like that's kind of, I don't know, healed some of the wounds of, I don't know, speaking Chinese. Yeah, and I would say that's pretty common for a lot of immigrant people. Um, I feel like there's kind of a wave now anyways with people who live in the diaspora that um, you kind of grow up when you're little, not wanting to be whatever ethnicity you are, but then you... Um, get to kind of your mid-20s or something and you realize hey this is an important part and it's okay to acknowledge that and maybe some of that overt racism is disappearing so people do feel better about owning who they are but I definitely think Te Reo Māori with its emphasis on whakapapa and where you come from that really helps with that. So I didn't actually realize that you'd formed Asians um, supporting Tinoranga Te Ratanga how did that come about? Uh, so as you spoke in Te Oranga Te Ratanga, it existed as a banner for quite a few years. So before I was part of it or anything. Um, and in 2015, there was a hui held at Waitangi for kind of young activists from different movements who were going up to learn about how Te Tiriti Waitangi could be a core part of all these different movements. So the movements were like feminist movements, queer movements, uh, climate change, all these different movements and centering around Tetiriti or Waitangi. And there was a hikoi up at Waitangi, or I think there is every year for Waitangi Day. And a friend and I had gone up 
and we were sort of part of the Hui group and they had this banner saying Pākehā against Raupatu and we were like tentatively holding it and didn't really feel like it was it was us but we she's also um Asian and then through the crowd this other Asian person came through with the banner that said Asian supporting and was like don't mean to presume but do you want to hold this with us uh with me and then we were like yep yep that's (laughs) that's definitely us and so yeah it was just the three of us and then we found out that that person they were also going to the um the the Waitangi Hui so kind of yeah just connected following year we there was about six of us that went up with the banner Marma Davidson took a photo of us went kind of viral on her social media and then we were like oh we need to do stuff that's more than just hold this banner so we started thinking about what we could do um and we're still we're not like super active because we all um have other things that we need to do in life but when we can we try to do workshops or panel events kind of public statements when we can just small things that show um solidarity in some way no that's cool because like some of the work that you do is with asian communities trying to like i guess talk about the importance of tatility and just learning more about maoridom i mean like i'm half like asian half maori so i kind of sit at the cusp of seeing what both sides kind of do and Mm. I have sometimes found it quite challenging. Like, what did you find when engaging with some of these Asian communities? Like, are they interested? I mean, I think it's like Asian communities are very broad. There's so many yeah, different 100%. lines. Generally, um, as Esther, we kind of mostly engage with people similar to us. So generally younger people, 1.5 gen, second gen immigrants um, who, because they've grown up here, there's more of an openness to learning about Te Ao Māori. Mm. anyways and we've done less engagement with people who may have immigrated when they were older because a lot of us don't really have the language skills to be able to even communicate some of these ideas which is something we really want to work on so that we're not just engaging with people who already think like us but we yeah we still haven't quite nailed that I think there's definitely a lot of prejudice that goes multiple ways Um, negativity between Māori and Asian communities in particular because historically yeah, the two true. groups have been against each other so much. Um, like alienation of Māori from their whenua and then Asians being portrayed as buying up all the houses or Asians um, sometimes being targeted for crime or just kind of being more of a, a, a scared, fearful of crime um, community and then Māori being represented in the media as like violent criminals. So yeah. because the two groups don't interact so much uh together a lot of what they think of each other is what's depicted in the media and that's always through a parkia lens and yeah that's something we just want to bridge more um, bridge the communities to speak directly to one another instead of holding these these views um from mainstream society yeah yeah i think it's so important that there's kind of like this bridge where people can come together and actually experience firsthand uh talk to each other um share stuff because it will, I'll just say that actually it was meeting you and being part of the short film that we were in together, Myth of the Model Minority. It was actually what inspired me to take up Te Reo Māori. Wow. Um, yeah, because. That's really cool. Yeah, because like hearing all of you talk and like speak in Te Reo and in Mandarin, because growing up here, 
I don't know I just like didn't have that much interest in it tried to take Mandarin in high school and wasn't like super great at it and just for some reason wasn't that interested in taking up Toro Māori and then until I saw all of you speaking it and I kind of had this taste for it from being in that scene yeah basically I think like the next year I started a course at AUT oh that's so cool that's um yeah that feels really cool to know that you have I don't know just felt so encouraged by something that you wanted to pursue that further and I hope it's felt rewarding for you to learn it's been super rewarding I think it's it's definitely tied up with that sense of I guess because I look Asian it kind of for me it took seeing someone else who was Asian speaking to the Māori for some reason for, for that to somehow click and think I don't know there's something about reclaiming that part of your identity or owning the fact that you can learn these languages and engage in these spaces and not have to necessarily um, have Māori whakapapa. I mean, like, yeah, it's just something I've always struggled with, that whole kind of looking Asian but being Māori. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's just so nice seeing other Asian-looking people or Asian wow. people. Yeah, speaking to it was really cool. So just wanted to tell you that you're an inspiration. Oh. <laughs> oh, That's so cool, though. I I'm really pleased for you. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to so you've done all this stuff in like Te Ao Māori but you're also doing all of the stuff around you know being the child of immigrants uh, to New Zealand and you actually have a short another film that you're getting made with and forgive me if I'm not saying this correctly but Pateri Raja Arif yeah Pateri yeah could you talk a little bit about that because it's being currently crowdfunded right Yes, 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 we are in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign, which is probably my least favourite thing to do ever. I just hate, hate asking people I know for money. Yeah, so it's a short film that I wrote quite a long time ago, several years ago, and it is called Lol Lola. So um, that kind of translates to like grandma's um, gotten older. And right. it's based off my maternal maternal grandma and um, and a moment that I saw between her and my brother when I went over to see them and she has Alzheimer's and my brother was only young at the time, maybe like 10 or something. And I just saw him like cooking for the both of them. And I don't know, there was just something that struck me about how strange it was to see this young boy having to take care of his grandma and because they were home alone my parents had gone out for something I think so yeah and I fictionalized the the script of the short film but I feel like the story just touches on like what it means to take care of family and I think that takes on a different sense especially when you are living in diaspora and when you grow up with quite different values to maybe your parents or grandparents and there's like this desire to like run away from who you are or your family and kind of all of that assimilation intergenerational um conflict stuff but through this vehicle of also with the alzheimer's that what that means but it's i don't know it's, it's a story that's been with me for a really long time i've been trying to get funding for it and keep getting shortlisted but not um, successful with funding and even though I try like I apply for a lot of things um yeah and I get rejected I'm usually fine but this one project just like every time 
get rejected for funding with this project. I like feel so heartbroken and I just really want to get it made. Um, and I feel like it's like a bit of closure as well. Cause I think I felt a lot of guilt with my grandma. So when I first came to New Zealand, she was the um, person that came with me. And when, and then she went back to China after a few years. And then I lived with my um, dad's grandparents. Um, but yeah, when I was at uni, I think my mum brought her back and uh, they were living with, so she was living with my um, family, but I just never went over to see her much and I just felt like I didn't really know her and the illness like I didn't really know how to deal with that either so yeah I like even though it's based on my brother and my grandma the kid um and his personality I think it's all most based on myself and this like rejection of family and then the guilt that you feel about that yeah I haven't actually <laughs> thought about this for a while and now I'm like whoa get oh yeah no you're <laughs> You're almost making me tear up a little bit because I had such a similar experience with my grandmother inside. My grandmother um, came over to New Zealand a few times when I was growing up and would like come for like a month or like six weeks or whatever. And I remember she came like probably the end of high school. And my, so my, my mum's family speak like Hokkien, which is a dialect in um, Singapore and they also speak mandarin and malay and like a bunch of other languages because in singapore you just had to learn them um Mm. but i can't speak anything but english and so it was quite challenging to and my grandmother doesn't speak the best english and so it was really challenging to communicate and i also just it sounds weird but i just didn't know what to do with her um like i didn't know how to connect with her i was quite young um and then i distinctly remember being in the supermarket car park with her and my best friend who is from Hong Kong can speak Cantonese and they could have this flowing conversation and I just sat there and I couldn't understand anything Mm. and I just felt like she had been able to connect with my grandmother in a way that I hadn't been able to and then in my early 20s my grandmother passed away really suddenly Mm. um yeah and just that guilt of like I as an adult I was like very determined to make that connection and make an effort and like look after her um even Mm. though she lived in Singapore and and then she passed away and I feel like I feel quite guilty that I didn't make more of an effort but yeah yeah but I yeah I do think it's it's a common probably experience yeah I don't really know how to how we fix that I guess we all just need to learn our own languages um but yeah it's hard it's a thing that yeah if you live in diaspora like my mum immigrated to New Zealand um to have me and my sister and um yeah just as that thing that you lose a bit of that connection and if you can't speak the language yeah it does create a bit of a barrier but I'm I'm really hope that you get to make this film how many days left of the crowdfunding campaign (gasps) uh I think it closes in a week yeah Okay. Yeah, we're like just over halfway, so there's like another like nine grand to go or something. But hey, I, I feel like it always it perks up at the end. Hopefully, I know. Um, the eleventh yeah. hour, just like panic of we need to get this thing made. Let's tack mm. some money at it. It's hard to crowdfund when you're asking your friends who are also struggling creatives, and sometimes it does feel like the money is just being like 
tossed around in the circle like everyone donates to each other but um yeah yeah, that's it feels so harsh (laughs) because how how I mean like COVID's impacted the arts industry like so much anyway Mm. just in terms of not being able to put on shows and stuff has it affected things like crowdfunding or like does it make it harder because people maybe don't have as much money yeah it's hard to know it like it's really hard to know. I know definitely in theatre, um, it's been hard for people obviously not putting on shows. At the same time, last year with the wage subsidy, uh, it was the first time lots of artist friends I know actually got paid because theatre, you just don't really make any money at all. So it was kind of worked out a little bit better. Um, and I know that New Zealand's kind of film industry is booming at the moment because we're seen as like such a safe haven and all these international productions have been happening here. So it's a bit strange. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just the generosity of people as well. I've definitely noticed like my creative friends, especially the struggling ones, are so generous in these donations. And then sometimes I'll see someone who I'm like, I feel like you're a lawyer, but you donated $10, um, mm-hmm. which is fine. Like I'm so grateful for every <laughs> like any amount. But uh, I feel especially bad when I see like a struggling artist friend donate. I mean it's super inspirational because they like really believe in what you're making and it feels like so nice to have that sort of community who just wants to see what you're like they want to see what you're going to make um so they want to help fund it another thing i um hate about crowdfunding is this expectation that you have to kind of tell people it's going to be this amazing thing but in my head i'm like panicking like what if it's terrible and all these people like I hope everyone just forgets about it and then it can be terrible and no one will care yeah well like I I've promoted it a little bit on social media and like put some money in uh the kitty for it but that's so true like I don't want you to feel this expectation like this um (laughs) I guess this pressure that has to be amazing I posted on Facebook that the reason why I thought it was so important is because Mm. I you know I want more diverse storytelling I want to see characters like me I want to see characters that don't look like me you know, I just want to explore more stories and it's just about making sure that that, that gets to happen because there's so many mediocre things that get to be made every single day. Yeah, um, true. Yeah, I just want this to see the light of day, basically. <laughs> Thank you so much. It means, it honestly means so much to see um, the posts that some people have written, including you. Like, that was, it's just so touching to see how this resonates with other people in different ways that's been a really great um, part of doing the crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, no, I'm, I really, really hope it makes it all the way there. And so, yeah, if you have some, some monies and you would like to see this uh, very, I, again, I don't want to put pressure on you, but I would say like, you know, an important film just because of what it is and the different perspective and the things that you get to explore in the story. Like if you want to see a film like this get made, please, I will put a link to the Booster campaign. Please send some money their way. No, Mathie, thank you. (laughs) I don't want to take up too much more of your time. There were some other things that I wanted to cover. Um, I just wanted to quickly mention the podcast that you do with Zaraid, which is called Conversations with My Immigrant Parents, Mm -hmm. which kind of ties into, Mm. you know, some of the film stuff that you've done. Do you want to give the quick... Sure. <laughs> um, so Conversations with My Immigrant Parents is a podcast and video series and uh, you can follow it on Instagram at Combos with My 
all find it on like podcast platforms. Um, it's with RNZ and basically we have gone around the country and meet all these, meet all these different immigrant whānau who um, share conversations that cross kind of generations. So um, parent and sometimes grandparent generations will talk with their kids. Kids aren't like, like under 18 kids or sometimes they are, but um, just yeah, intergenerational stories that talk about all sorts of things sometimes immigration, sometimes racism, but also like queerness and mental health and grief and uh, just human emotions. And um, it's all told through like conversations with each other rather than an interview. And then Sarai and I kind of, we just chime in every now and then, but it's just been one, it's just been like such a great, like one of my favorite things ever to work on. And series two is coming out. I think it's going to be dropped weekly from the 11th of March. It's oh, so lucky. We're so lucky to do stuff like this. Oh, it's, it's so cool. I love it. I'm really looking forward to season two. Yeah, I'll provide links to that show and a wee introduction that you and Sarai did um, that I particularly loved just because you were both so cute. <laughs> um, and yeah, because it just made me think like for you and having your parent like immigrating from China, I know that certainly for me, there was like a point in time where I realized that culturally I was diverging from my, particularly my mom. I was just wondering whether you had a similar experience <laughs> where there was a time where you were like, oh. Definitely. I mean, I feel it my whole life. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so like episode nine of the first season, Sarade and I, like turn the mics on ourselves and we take half the episode each and talk to our own mums and yeah my mum got really emotional and she Aww. spent like half of it crying somehow even though she doesn't usually do that in real life but I think just once she started she couldn't shop um but we talk about some hard stuff in there um yeah yeah I think I really have spent and probably still continue to spend a lot of time pushing away from her um and it's a process of trying to come back together yeah I find that especially as my parents get older I'm trying to I don't know find ways to talk more to them about what they actually care about and what I care about because I don't want them to get almost the wrong impression of me I don't want them to think that I'm this one kind of person and actually they don't know how I really feel about stuff but I do sometimes feel really bad for my mum because she wanted these, you know, nice. I don't know what she expected, actually, but it wasn't me and my sister. <laughs> like, a very alternative, I don't know. <laughs> don't. Uh, she always wanted us to have really long hair. And so I didn't tell her when I cut all of my hair off. Just like really subtle, small things. Yeah. Expectations sure. for girls, especially um mm -hmm. even just in subtle things like she'd always say when you have a husband and I was like if I have a husband yeah <laughs> um when you have children if I have children it's just like really small things but mm. so something that you mentioned earlier on was actually something that I wrote down in my notes um to talk to you about was your speech at the power of inclusion summit that took place in Auckland 2019 so I read your article in pantograph punch where you put your like entire speech there I really loved it, by the way. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's, it's so weird. That speech has gotten so much attention. It's strange to me. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because, like, I 
I was talking to my husband last night about, you know, this interview and some of the stuff that I'd read. And um, I mentioned the Power of Inclusion Summit. And he was like, oh, that. I was like, oh, no. Uh, what? <laughs> oh, just like that he had heard like all the, like that, you know, yeah. the stuff that you mentioned in your article, which I will link because I think it's very good. But just, it's funny that they were called the Power of Inclusion, but there were lots of um, issues around actual accessibility to it because it was very expensive. Um, the kind of, I guess, the diversity of the people that they included to talk. But one of the things that really struck a chord with me in your speech was your encouragement for all of us to commit to justice, not diversity and inclusion, and kind of how you like don't really like the words diversity and inclusion anymore. Mm. What's like the difference for you? Hmm. Um, I, th- I mean, I feel like I've said it all before, and I think lots of other people do. Like, I don't think I'm special at all for talking about this stuff. I feel, feel like I'm just repeating what... Um, I talk about with my friends that's what I kind of felt like the speech was it was just the conversations that I have with my peers all the time about how diversity is tokenistic and it's always it um, disguises or ignores the structures of power that are in society like like the place that we've gotten to now isn't natural but it's from colonization and oppression and it's all this historical stuff and that's why I'm calling for justice because it's like all this injustice has happened to make the situation the way it is now where some people have all the power and want to offer this like this olive branch of inclusion and diversity to other people but actually we need to just correct the injustice that's taken place it's not like a kind thing to do diversity but it's the right thing to do diversity I still hate using that word. I, know. I felt really bad because I read that and literally post promoting your uh, um, the short film that you're crowdfunding for, I had mentioned the word like diversity a bunch of times and I was like. Oh. <laughs> it's no judgment though. It's, no, not, it's not like a judgment of people who use this word are dumb. I think we need to get yeah. away from judgment. Yeah. I think that's something else I've been thinking about more, but that's a different conversation as well. I think the way for all of us to move forward is to, place less judgment on those who are a bit slower on the journey and it's we need to all come on it together and not be like oh that person is so racist and so backwards they'll never get it like it's a lot of emotional energy but some some of us when we have the energy should should help others along yeah yeah no because um I do think the practical application of this desire to have more diversity inclusion and to actually write sort of injustices that practical implica- uh, practical application people really struggle with. Like I see that in so many spaces where people really want to do the mahi, but they don't really know what that looks like. They don't really know what decolonization looks like, which kind of brings me to another thing in your speech that you talked about that struck a chord with me, which was, you know, where you said that for people of color, like how do we negotiate the tension between fighting to belong and choosing to be okay and not belonging? So you like asked, like, are we actually upholding and legitimizing white supremacy by constantly asking to be led into a system that continues to oppress mm-hmm. us? Sometimes we forget the real battle is to tear down the institution, not to demand a place in it. And yeah, maybe that is what decolonization really looks like is that we can't try to fit, fix a broken, like an inherently broken machine. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, I think, because we don't, um, 
get presented with lots of models of decolonization and practice. I would love to see more people like dreaming of what that can look like in big contexts and also small contexts so that it can become more of a reality. I think that's a, I don't want to say that's a pertinent point when I made it, but um, I think a lot of the time immigrant communities in particular, because of this whole thing of like that, where are you from really us not wanting to be seen as outsiders, we like fight so hard to belong, but we forget that um, our belongingness kind of impacts other people in particular tongue to in the work. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just kind of being aware that us trying to belong in essentially like a white society. Yeah, that it just impacts other people as well. Um, I don't know, it just made me think about how one of the things like, you know, you try and cope or fit in into like a system that doesn't accept you necessarily. Like one of the things that I do sometimes when I'm out in the WAPs or in the country and I'm like the only Asian face around, sometimes you do get stares. And so I will find myself trying to like speak early and very loudly in English uh, mm. to show that I belong and that I'm like a real Kiwi and that I'm not a threat. And that's like super problematic, not my behavior, but the fact that I feel like I have to do that because I'm like scared of hostility or mm. scared of judgment. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes we don't even notice those small things that we do to try and prove ourselves before other people can judge us. Yeah. Mm. And so when I was actually preparing for this interview, but like I completely forgot that you ran for the botany seat in 2017. Oh, we'll bring that up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing I did. <laughs> yeah, was that like a, a, what kind of an experience was that for you? Was that good, bad? Like, did it kind of um, stem from your, you know, was that kind of a way for you to try and seek justice? Like try and help other people? Yeah, that's a good framing of it, I think. Um, yeah, doing kind of politics in the, the traditional sense of politics and doing art and doing activism, I feel like sometimes people see those as like quite different areas, but I feel like they're all like towards the same goal. Um, they're all wanting kind of, well, for me, art is about making the world a better place, as cliche as that sounds but trying to um, kind of use storytelling to uh, shift perspectives and open people's minds up. And um, yeah, I think change takes place in big ways and small ways. And sometimes it's like through watching a short film or sometimes it's through um, like protest and people power. And sometimes it's like literally someone who has political power making judicial change. And I don't know, it's, it's hard because it is working within the system, but sometimes working within the system does make immediate change for those who need it. No, because, um, I mean, what is it like running for an electoral seat? Um, I, yeah. yeah, I think when you run for the Greens, it's not necessarily to get in. It's more to raise the party vote because the Greens, um, aside from Chloe just now and Jeanette, uh, way back in 1999 Greens don't really go for to win seats they want to raise the party vote so that they can get more MPs into the list yeah and I really did not do that well Botany got like the lowest party vote or second lowest or something of the whole country for the Greens um, so you still came through 
I mean, you come third out of like what five people, so um, yeah, yeah. But I think it's so um, it's so cool that you even put yourself forward for that because I mean, it is still pretty public, even just running. Um, I've seen quite a few young people, like particularly young Wahine, get into politics. Like Louise Hutt in um, Hamilton did a really big campaign when she was trying to get onto the local council. Um, and it's not because they necessarily want to be elected, but it's because they want to draw like attention to a particular issue or like you said, increase the party vote. But in saying that, like, do you think you'd ever get into politics again? In this way? Uh, I don't think so. Not in that way. Um, I think I'm in politics anyways, just in other ways, activism through art. But no, nah, I don't think so. I think at the time there weren't as many of these like young people, young POC, wahine, gender minorities running. And I felt like it was something important to do at that time. But now there are so many cool rangatahi, queer, non-binary, POC, like Māori, just so many, so many people out there. And I do not feel like my voice is needed for that. Um, and I'm so excited to see all these cool people doing stuff and doing like, like you said, doing it because they want to see change, not because they want power yeah um, yeah most of them like don't even want to be doing this and I think that's the kind of people you need yeah quite often I really appreciated the transparency of some of these candidates talking about you know their mental health during this process but how they're still putting themselves out there because they believe I guess essentially in the greater cause and it's just I don't know I feel very humbled by that I feel very inspired and humbled that these people are still putting them out themselves out there we're almost at the end. I've definitely taken up more of your time, sorry. Um, but I wanted to really, really quickly uh, talk about the documentary that you made. I'm really sorry, the name of it has just completely flown out of my head, but it was about asexuality and ace of hearts, there we go. Um, so finding a home in the asexual spectrum. And it was so nice to see this kind of like, I guess a film about an aspect of, of society of sexuality that maybe isn't that, isn't that well known. And yeah, just reading your article on the spinoff about it and like all the different terms, it can be really confusing, not just for like other people to understand, but even for yourself mm. understanding it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about the, the film? Yeah, so um, Ace of Hearts is a short documentary with a spin-off around the uh, asexual community in Aotearoa, uh, which is pretty small and hard to find, I think. And um, I was interested to make it because I feel like I do sit on the asexual spectrum as well. It's something I've been like learning more about the last few years. And you're right, there are a lot of terms and I'm still a bit like unclear which terms exactly I feel like fit with me. I kind of feel like gray sexual pan romantic kind of fits but I don't think I'm very precious about like sticking to any sort of terms as well and um yeah I don't know I kind of think sexuality is fluid and when I was young I, I thought everyone was bi I was like how could you possibly discriminate based on gender <laughs> um but yeah it's something I've been thinking lots about uh it's it, yeah it's most of my friends are queer and I feel like I haven't been able to like talk about that as much because I haven't felt like I've been like overtly queer or understood that for so long. Um, 
and yeah it's a new thing that I'm um, unpacking more um, and I haven't really talked about it heaps I'm not like um, it's not a secret like if, if anyone asks I'll talk about it but I'm not like very public about it because I feel like I'm still figuring things out and I think that's okay yeah, yeah. definitely I mean, it is interesting because I feel like a lot of the discourse around sexuality has been a, uh, kind of like about sex. It's about like who you get mm. to love and who you get to have sex with. That mm. um, it's kind of quite different to talk about maybe the absence of, of love or romance or the absence of sex. Yeah. And the queer community can be quite like sexualized in its presentation, yeah. which makes it hard for like minority sexualities to feel like there's a place within that yeah well like just the quiet queers oh I found this really great tweet I'll share it yeah. with you um, but I read it and I was like this is me <laughs> it was like about the quiet queers and the people who don't talk about it or can't talk about it because of their family or whatever I love the term <laughs> quiet queers because yeah again like a lot of I guess LGBTQA plus sort of pride has been kind of like loud and proud and maybe that's just the Maybe. It's like the visibility that's needed because yeah, it's not. exactly. But yeah, what happens if you're a quiet queer? I think it's changing. Like I keep meeting all these young people. Oh, I hate that I'm not young anymore, but I keep meeting these people who are like a decade younger than me. And they're so cool. They're so onto it. All of them are queer and it's just like fine. It's normalized and like nothing, there's no big deal. And I just can't wait for that future. I know I sometimes wonder what it would be like to be to have grown up in this era I feel mm. like I would have loved it Same. As a teenager, but now I'm like in my 30s and I'm like uh, <laughs> I can enjoy I can still enjoy it but yeah I think it would have been a really interesting experience to have grown up um, mm. in this particular time so thank you so much for talking to me for ages about stuff I really okay. appreciate it <laughs> Um, just to round things out, I really like asking interesting people what their recommendations are for stuff. Just wanted to see if there are any food places, movies, TV shows, bands, podcasts, etc. that you, I don't know, keep finding yourself recommending to people. Okay. Uh, lockdown last year, I watched heaps. And um, my absolute favorite thing that I think everyone needs to watch, there's two parts. It's, they're both by Ava um, Duvernay. But her doco, 13th, oh, yeah. need to watch it. And then after that, watch When They See Us, which is um, a four-part miniseries. Oh, it's about the justice system in America, how it's based off slavery. Like, they just needed slavery to continue. So they made up laws to put people in prison. It's about the prison industri um, industrial complex. And, oh, it's, it's so important to watch. Um, yeah. And I want to do a version of that. It's on Netflix, yeah. Oh, the 13th is actually on, it's free on YouTube as well. But they're both on Netflix. Food places. This one's really just for me because I love to eat, so. <laughs> I just discovered Tianful Noodle in um, Newmarket and that was really good. Um, otherwise, I usually, I've gone to Shaxian Snack quite a lot. Um, they're always empty. I, more people need to go there. It's on Dominion Road, Shaxian Snack. And okay. they have, if you're vegan, they have amazing vegetarian barbecue buns. So good. The temple out in Botany, vegan laksa, really good. Yeah, I got heaps of favorite food places. <laughs> what else is there? Podcasts. Um, I actually don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Terrible. <laughs> um, Shiloh, do you know Shiloh Kino? 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. So she's just started back to cutter. I feel like you would maybe yes. be interested. I have in that. a tab yes. open that I need to go back to, but I'm glad that you've said it. Yeah. Otherwise, for people um, learning to do like Taringa is so good. And um, also, uh, we kind of have like a sibling podcast, uh, Hekaka Noaho, which is by Kahukutia. Um, that one's also on RNZ. And yeah, their podcast and our podcast were like little siblings like to support each other. They're really great. It's um, kind of around uh, what life is like for urban Māori. But I'm going as well. Awesome. Um, and then finally, what is something that's coming up for you that you'd like more people to support? Whether that be something that you're doing or something that you know is happening that you'd like to draw attention to. I mean, obviously give money to Julie's Booster campaign, please. Yeah, but, yeah. I also know that there's about to be a whole lot of new boosters coming up for people's um, short films because I think the next round of Fresh Shorts films will be doing boosted. All the loading docs are about to launch theirs. I know some Someday Stories projects um, are doing some boosteds like Alicia Ada who is doing Hektakatapuyaho um, about a short film about a non-binary um, rangatahi Māori so yeah heaps of boosted <laughs> projects to support so would just encourage anyone just like think about that meal that you want to don't like spend money on or a coffee and just support some young filmmakers Awesome. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, okay. Thanks so much for asking me, Kim. It was so nice to talk to you. Can <laughs> you more? Um, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, this is basically my whole scheme is that I get people to do an interview and I'm like, haha, you have to like me and we can hang out more. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. that's our episode thank you so much for listening and thank you to julie for talking to me for probably longer than she anticipated actually um i can chat clearly i made this podcast just so i could i could chat anyway if you made it this far as i'm sure a hundred percent of you did uh thanks for listening i hope you're well i hope you're doing good auckland's just come out of alert level three I got to go to a restaurant today. It was very nice. I had some dumplings, if you were wondering. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing some of my friends and family again. Yeah, have an awesome week, everyone. As I mentioned in the episode, please go support Julie's Booster campaign and keep an eye out for those other booster campaigns that are coming up as well. If you'd like to see more films or more media or more stories from Aotearoa, this is a great way to make sure that it happens. Kia kaha, everyone. And... Yeah, kakite, see you next time. <laughs>